Last week we began chapter 5, and it is the start of a new section within the letter, one that really will lead us all the way home. This section that we started last week leads us all the way to the end of the letter. Paul continues to unpack the practical implications of how richly we've been blessed in Christ, as he explained to us in the opening chapters. And so as a banner over all that he has to say in chapters 5 and 6, we saw how Paul gives a twofold command, imitate God and love like Christ. It is proper to understand everything that he says thereafter according to that overarching charge, imitate God and love like Christ. And we explore just briefly what that might look like in our lives. Drawing from the immediate context to imitate God is to strive for holiness, to be someone who forgives and who loves. To love like Christ is to love consistently in a self-denying way, to love in such a manner that we aim to please God. Now, beyond verse 2 into verses 3 and following, Paul himself begins to unpack what it looks like to imitate God and love like Christ. He does so very positively later on in the chapter positive commands as to what we ought to be doing with our lives, thinking particularly of the household codes that he gives us, wives, husbands, children, bond servants. This is how you are to act. But before we get there, he first explains what it is to imitate God and love like Christ in a negative manner. That is to say, he gives prohibitions. Don't do these things. If you are to successfully live a life that imitates God and loves like Christ, you should not be engaged with these practices. And summarizing what Paul says in 3 through 6, he teaches the church that they are to abstain from evil. They are to abstain from evil. Why? Because God is light and God is love. And in so much as you pursue evil, are characterized by evil, indulge in evil practices, you are neither imitating God nor loving like Christ. Your sin stops you from living a holy life. Your sin also brings much hurt upon others. Your sin is never isolated. As much as you might think and try and convince yourself that your sin is in private and isn't really hurting anyone, it always affects those around you. So as to fail to abstain from evil is very much to fail to imitate God and fail to love like Christ. So before Paul gets to his positive exhortations, He makes clear to the church in Ephesus that they are to keep themselves back from these sins. And indeed, he gives a warning. 
those who are characterized by this kind of lifestyle will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it's important to note from the very beginning, Paul is not giving these instructions as a corrective. I've said many times, Ephesians is not a corrective letter. That's Galatians. That's 1 Corinthians. There are those letters in the New Testament that were written in an order to rebuke and to correct, not Ephesians. The church in Ephesus was healthy, thriving. So then why does Paul give these admonitions, make plain these prohibitions? Why does he find it necessary to give such a stark and sobering warning? Contextually, most likely, because this was the lifestyle of those in Ephesus who were outside of the church. You'll remember the Artemis cult was prevalent. Many who would go and worship in the Artemis temple, even to the point now where the church is feeling the pressure from those pagan worshippers. And as they, the Christians, would observe their lives, most likely these are the kind of practices they would observe as normative, prevalent. And Paul gives these prohibitions as a reminder. Don't be influenced. Don't walk in a manner that resembles the way they live their lives. Let me warn you and remind you of that which you already know. You will not inherit the kingdom of God if that is how you are to live. He wants them to keep thriving in Christ. I think sometimes as we realize that a particular text was written into a very specific cultural context, the tendency that we can have is to pass by it as if somehow it is no longer relevant to us. Paul's writing directly to the Christians in Ephesus. It comes indirectly to us here. We see how he's addressing the cultural situation there and perhaps... We might breeze over these verses and think they're not so pertinent for me today. But here is where I think the letter to the Ephesians takes on an almost prophetic nuance. The sins of which Paul speaks about in these few verses are the sins that characterize our society today. And if there is any weakness that we observe throughout church history, every generation of the church, it is that we tend to be influenced by the world so as to end up looking like them. There's a direction of influence, and it is never, sadly, from the church to the world, but always otherwise. These are the sins that characterize society today, and so Paul's warning does come directly to us. We must abstain from evil. We must imitate God and love like Christ so as to honor him. And I pray that we would be instructed towards that end this evening. Now, in terms of the structure, Paul lists six sins. And they can be grouped into two groups of three. Six sins, the first three relate to our conduct. 
our behavior, and the next three relate to our conversation, our speech, what we do with our words, our conduct, and our conversation, and then he gives the warning. And that's how we'll work through the text this evening, beginning with the sins of conduct. He says, but sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. This list of three sins further divides into two and then one. The sexual immorality and the impurity belong together, the and joining them, and then Paul shifts, or covetousness. Very simply stated, the first two are external. They concern our outward actions. The third is internal, the disposition of our hearts. Sexual immorality, outside of the Bible, the word used here, is typically used to speak of homosexuality or prostitution. In the first century, the words that Paul uses here in 5.3 would be a reference to homosexuality or prostitution. Paul is writing from a Christian perspective, and it's reasonable to understand that he employs the word with a broader category of behaviors in mind. Certainly, it includes homosexuality and prostitution. But it goes beyond that. In fact, as Paul uses this one word in the original language, he has in mind any sexual behavior that deviates from God's good, perfect plan. Any behavior that does not align with the plan that God gives in his word is sexually immoral behavior. In Genesis chapter 2, God made for Adam a helper. The first marriage. He made Adam sleep, a deep sleep. He took a rib from him and he fashioned Eve. And Adam woke up and he said in poetic fashion, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He was enamored with the wife that God had created for him. And the text then reads, Therefore, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife. He will cling to his wife. Now, the, the therefore, the for this reason is so important, it links the two. God made for Adam Eve, that was his doing, therefore, on the basis of God's action and his plan, man clings to his wife. Our fidelity in marriage is a direct derivative from the fact that God is the author of marriage. We are faithful in our marriages because God created marriage. And it is good and right to honor him. And therefore, the only proper use of our sexual desires is within an exclusive and permanent relationship between one man and one woman. We've rehearsed this many times before. It is throughout God's word the only way in which to honor God with expressions of intimacy is in an exclusive and permanent union between one man and one woman called marriage. Any 
deviation from that is immorality. Impurity, the second sin that Paul lists, goes beyond sexual immorality to all that runs contrary to God's law. Not speaking only of practices which are sexually immoral, but any behavior that deliberately walks in the opposite direction to that which God's law lays out for us. Speaks to all areas of life, and it is a characteristic behavior. One that acknowledges in some way what is good and right and true and says, I choose to do otherwise. Now, if you are guilty of sexual immorality or impurity, understand you are neither imitating God nor loving like Christ. To honor God by esteeming marriage is, in some sense, to imitate Him. It is to say after Him, this is good. Whether you are married or single, you can esteem his plan for one man and one woman in a permanent exclusive relationship, and by upholding it, you are speaking that which he has already pronounced, which is, this is good. To deviate from that is to fail to imitate him. In like manner, if you pursue any kind of sexual immorality, It is to fail to love others like Christ did. Sexual sin is selfish. It objectifies others. It doesn't acknowledge that every person is created in the image of God. And so it is a failure to love one another as Christ did. It is also a failure, both sexual immorality and impurity, to walk in holiness. If you go contrary to God's law as he has given it so plainly in his word, you are saying, I don't want to set myself apart from the way of the world. I want to live according to my own desires. You are not imitating God when you are guilty of impurity. And you're failing to love like Christ in so much as your sin will bring harm in the community. It's worth remembering that when God gave his law to Israel, he gave it to a community. It was not appropriated individually. It was heard and received and lived out in community. And to break that law is in some way to do injury to your neighbor. We perhaps don't see or think like that as readily as the Israelites would have. But as you study the law, you see so plainly there is this horizontal aspect. It is fleshed out, lived out, practiced amongst the community. And so as you break it, not only are you failing to imitate God, but you are not loving as Christ loved. And thus Paul says, abstain from evil. Don't be sexually immoral. Don't be impure. The third sin he lists is that of coveting. There's a shift from external to internal here. The coveting need not necessarily be played out with action, 
It could simply be a disposition of your heart. And as Paul undoubtedly had in his mind, as he wrote of sexual immorality, the plan that God gave in Genesis 2, quite possibly when he speaks of coveting, he has in his mind the 10th commandment. Don't covet what your neighbor has. Don't long or lust after what they have, which has not been given to you. This sin speaks of a greedy spirit. In fact, if you look down at verse 5, Paul goes further and says to covet is to be an idolater. To covet is to be an idolater. And so you see again, If you are coveting, lusting after that which God has not seen fit to give you, by no means can it be said that you are imitating God. There is some portion of your heart that is now worshipping something which is not Him. You have rendered yourself an idolater. And you are not loving others because you are breaking the law and it will bring harm to your neighbor. Paul says, let these sins not be named among you. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness must not even be named among you. Now that's an interesting way of issuing a prohibition. He doesn't simply say, don't do these things. Do not be found guilty of these sins. That is certainly the sentiment, but he says it in a particular way. Let them not even be named among you. So what's the significance of those words? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul names a specific sin. A specific sin that was present in the church there in Corinth. And so we understand because he was ready to call it out, to name it, that as he writes this in Ephesians, he's not saying that if the sin is present, you should overlook it. He's not saying that. If these sins should ever be present amongst us, they would be acknowledged, identified, and confronted. Rather, what Paul is saying is that you should live so far away from these sins, so far removed from these sins, that there is no need for them ever to come up in everyday conversation. You are living so far away from sexual immorality that there is no ordinary reason for it ever to come up in your conversation. You're so far away from impurity that you never need to speak of impurity. So far away from lusting after that which is not yours that it never comes up in your conversations. You see, what Paul is doing as he says, let them not even be named amongst you, is he is carving out lines of holiness within which we are to live our lives. He is showing us that the way to holy living, imitating God and loving like Christ is not by no means to skirt around sin, to live close to sin in the hope that you won't actually sin. 
That is not how we are to live a holy life, but to distance yourself so far from sin that there is never any need to even speak of it. You live so far from the sins that characterize the world that they never come up in ordinary conversation. And indeed, he says, as is proper among saints. Paul uses the word saints here in a very specific manner to refer to what we call our positional sanctification. When we use the word sanctification, we normally have in mind what we call progressive sanctification. That is to say, our moving forward in Christ-likeness. The Bible also shows us a different kind of sanctification. There is the progressive sanctification, but there is positional sanctification. Positional sanctification is effected the moment that we are justified. You put your eyes upon Christ and trust Him. You accept Him for who He said He is. You allow His blood to cover your sins You're justified. Your sins are dealt with and you're clothed in His righteousness. Positionally, you are now set apart for all of eternity. God looks upon you and says you are now set apart for all of eternity. That is your positional sanctification. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he corrects them for their sinful behavior. But it's so instructive to note that he begins the letter by calling them saints. For chapter after chapter, he'll correct them. And he'll say, you've got to start living holy lives. But he begins the letter by calling them saints. You are positionally set apart, sanctified. God has done that work at the cross. And the rest of the letter, as it were, is Paul saying, now be who you are. Be the sanctified, positionally set-apart saint. In the same way, Paul is saying, live so far from these sins that you are indeed showing the world that you are a saint. How do we do this? How can we ensure that our lives are so far from sin that there is not even the hint, the risk of us crossing these lines determined by God's Word and indulging in evil practices. I know a few defenses against sin better than to simply celebrate the goodness of God in the plan that he has given to you? How do you guard yourself from sin? You celebrate God's good plan for you. How do you keep yourself from sexual immorality? Celebrate on a daily basis God's good plan for marriage. Whether you're married or single, choose to delight in the good plan that God has given in his word. Celebrate every marriage. Celebrate your marriage. Celebrate the marriages you see around you in the church. 
How do you keep yourself from impurity, from carving out patterns of behavior that run contrary to God's law? Celebrate His commands. Rehearse to yourself and to others, to all who will listen, with the psalmist, how much you love His law. Oh, how I love your law, oh Lord. Say that to yourself, even if your flesh is running against your spirit, rehearse that truth so as to attest to your own mind and your own heart that God's law is good. Thus you won't be tempted to indulge in impurity. How do you guard yourself against coveting? Celebrate God's providence in your life. Celebrate the way in which his life, your life, has unraveled itself according to his good and perfect will. You believe in a sovereign creator who reigns. Rehearse to yourself daily his goodness in your life in order that your heart would not lust after that which he has not seen fit to give you. Tell yourself that your lot in life is good. Because it is, because God has decreed it, so that you would not indulge in evil. I think about these principles of celebrating God's provision, His goodness, His commands often, as I think through the next generation in this church. By God's grace, May we raise up the next generation of Christians. We will all be gone really soon. And then it's their turn. So how can we, according to God's grace, ensure that they esteem marriage? That they don't depart from God's plan? How can we, by God's grace, ensure that they love the ordinance of marriage? How can we, by God's grace, ensure that they delight to walk in paths of obedience, though not perfectly trying, desiring to honor the Lord? How can we, by God's grace, ensure that they do not lust continually after what the world has to offer, but are content with what God has given them? The answer is to celebrate before them by way of providing an example how content we are. The answer is to live out lives before them, giving to them godly examples of happy marriages, of obedient, joy-filled Christians, of content disciples who are not carrying the burden that the Bible places on us in a begrudging manner. It is a burden God wants us to lift this and to carry it, but to do so joyfully, fueled by His grace, in so much as you pursue your marriage in a way that lacks joy, you are preaching to the next generation. Don't be surprised if they do not esteem marriage if you don't esteem marriage. But when you are willing to celebrate the union of one man and one woman, exclusive and permanent, and to delight in that, then see the next generation rise up and celebrate with you and after you the ordinance of marriage. 
In the same manner, if the young people in this church look around and they see grumpy Christians, obedient yet grumpy, do not be surprised when they choose not to walk in the paths of the Lord. But when they come week after week and they see people full of joy, not indulging in what the world has to offer, exercising self-control with happy hearts. By God's grace, watch them follow. When they hear you speak of what God has provided in your life, how good He has been to you, and you find cause to point out His good graces to you, you are an example to them, modeling contentment, Watch them follow in like-mindedness. This is how you abstain from evil. Now again, Paul is not correcting the Ephesians. There's no reason to think these sins were prevalent in the congregation. Most likely, as they met in that upper room where Paul himself had taught them, if they were to peer out of the window on any given day, these would be the sins they see abounding. As this text comes to us, I would just say if you are guilty of these sins, in part or in whole, you need to confess them. If you're guilty of sexual immorality, you need to confess that sin. If you're guilty of impurity, persistent disobedience to God's word, you need to confess that sin. If you're guilty of coveting, confess that sin. Bring it out into the light, because when sin is brought into the light, there it dies. It shrivels up, it loses its power. If you keep it hidden, it will continue to flourish. Tell someone, confess your sin to someone. A little bit of accountability goes a long way. If you are not guilty of these sins, praise God this evening. And celebrate all the more the good past that he has marked out for you. Now, Paul moves on in verse 4 to give another three sins. In verse 3, he speaks about sins of conduct. In verse 4, he speaks about sins of conversation, speaking. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Filthiness, the word used there, speaks of ugly, dishonoring speech. It's the kind of speech that is pointed, oftentimes aimed at another individual and tears down. Foolishness is talk that is senseless. It's not full of wisdom. It doesn't build up. All the way through Ephesians, Paul uses this metaphor of building, building, building the church. 
And we've seen how powerful words are in the building of the church. Foolish talk is that which does nothing to build. It doesn't build up. Crude joking is sarcastic, rude jokes at another's expense. Again, tearing other brothers and sisters down. Your words are powerful. They do affect others. They affect the way things are. And Paul says, there should be no filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joking amongst you. If you engage in this kind of conversation, you're failing to imitate God. That is not how God speaks. If you engage in this kind of conversation, most certainly you are not loving one another as Christ loved us. And so Paul says, let it not be amongst you. And at the end of the verse, these things are out of place. Again, it's important to notice how this sits in parallel with the second half of verse 3. He gives the lists of sins, and then in verse 3 he says, don't let it be named amongst you. It's not proper. Live your life so far away from these that the sins wouldn't even come up in ordinary conversation. In verse 4, the parallel thought is out of place. It shouldn't find its way in here. You are saints, set apart, sanctified. It's not right for you to behave this way. Be who you are. God has saved you. He set you apart for all of eternity. Now behave as such. Now I want you to notice the point of application that Paul gives as the antidote. Don't engage in this kind of talk. Instead, he says, let there be thanksgiving. This is profound. This is God's word giving us a roadmap for how we are to conduct our lives, order our words in a way that imitates God and loves like Christ. Let there be thanksgiving. Never underestimate the power of giving thanks. There's an emphatic contrast. But instead, rather, Paul is being emphatic here. Don't engage in filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joking. The the opposite, the antidote, is to give thanks. Don't underestimate the power that is found in giving thanks. A life that is spent giving thanks is a life that will walk in paths of holiness. A life that is spent giving thanks is a life wherein you will love like Christ loved. Or, to say it otherwise, if you fail to give thanks, you are opening up a door in your life for sin. There will be all kinds of bitterness that grows in your heart. All kinds of resentment. And you will no longer be living your life miles and miles and miles away from sin. All of a sudden, you'll be gravitating towards it. And before long, before you know it, you'll be engaged in it. Give thanks as the biblical antidote to indulging in evil. 
Praise God and thank Him for what He has done for you as the means of living a holy life. It is how you keep yourself back from sin. I'm reminded of a conversation I had some years ago now with a young couple, the wife, had just been diagnosed with cancer. They were good friends. Her prognosis was not good. I actually interviewed them. I was involved in a student ministry at the time, and I asked if they would join us one evening and allow me to ask some questions. They would give their testimony so as to minister to those students. Students thought they had their whole lives ahead of them. They thought everything would go according to their plan. And I thought this was a, an opportunity for this couple to minister to them. And so they spoke, and they were very realistic about what lay ahead. Most likely they wouldn't have children together. They wouldn't grow old together. She's with the Lord today. And at one point in the evening, I asked how, with this prognosis, how do you resist becoming bitter? Life is not playing out the way you thought. They're in their first year of marriage. And it looked like she would soon be with the Lord. How do you resist becoming bitter? And I'll I'll never forget her answer. She looked at the students and she said, every day, find a reason to give thanks. Find a reason to give thanks. That's what Paul says as a means of us abstaining from sin. Now, having laid out these dangers that were so prevalent in Ephesus, he then gives a warning. Verse 5, 4, you may be sure of this. Everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He gives the warning a second time. Let no one deceive you. Don't let anyone out there tell you otherwise. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the Son's of disobedience. On the very last day, your works will be tested. You're not saved by your works, but they do show who you are. They'll be tested. And in so much as these practices have characterized you, Paul says, you will have no inheritance. 
doesn't matter if you were at church every Sunday and sang with the saints. It doesn't matter if you read your Bible and prayed. If these works characterized you, they are the indication of where your heart is at, and God is the judge. He will declare that you have no inheritance in his kingdom. Indeed, if this is your life, the wrath of God will come upon you. On that last day, Jesus Christ himself will declare that you are a son of disobedience. Paul did not think that he was ministering to unbelievers. Paul knew these Christians. He was thrilled at their response to the gospel. He's not writing these words to warn unbelievers and drive them towards faith in Christ. He's writing these words to Christians because Paul knows about the doctrine of perseverance. Without negating the truth that we are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, we are saved. It is all a work of God. Without negating those precious truths, the Bible teaches that the means by which we get to the end is by persevering. God ordains that having saved us, we would then labor to ensure we reach the finish line. And if we do not persevere, it is because we were never truly saved. Paul himself knows this as he writes in 1 Corinthians, I discipline my body in order that having preached the gospel, I myself would not be disqualified. He knows acutely the truth that Christians are called to persevere. It is the God-ordained means by which we will cross the final finish line. And so he gives this warning to Christians. He says, keep laboring, keep abstaining from evil. Or, to put it in Jesus' words, do not show yourself to be the seed that sprouted up and flourished for a period, but when the sun came, it withered and died. Do not be that soil. Don't respond in that way. The most sobering reality of that parable is that Jesus never gives a timestamp. There is a soil that receives the word and responds. And there is a period wherein the response seems right. But then there comes a day when that soil no longer produces fruit. Jesus doesn't tell us when that day is. A year, five years, ten years, fifty years. Of someone seemingly going on in the Lord and then they walk away from what they know to be good and right and true and indulge in evil to the point where the final verdict is that you are a son of disobedience. Paul gives the warning so that the Christians in Ephesus would not be counted as that soil ever. It is his exhortation to persevere, to keep pressing on, 
to not grow weary in our imitation of God or in our loving as Christ loved. It is his exhortation to keep celebrating God's goodness towards us so as to abstain from all evil. If you know that you are not persevering tonight, look to Christ. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He gifts to us faith and he causes us to persevere. If you persevere tonight, praise the Lord. Christ is your treasure. Keep gazing at him. Keep giving thanks. Keep abstaining from sin that we would all be imitators of God and love like Christ. Pray with me now to close. Father, we give you thanks for these words in Ephesians. Sobering reminder of the evil that does exist, of which we could so readily indulge in. Abstain from evil. Keep yourselves far away from sins of conduct and conversation. Celebrate God's goodness, His law, His providence. Celebrate who God is and what He's done. Give thanks so that on the last day, not one of us would be counted as a son of disobedience. I pray that every person here tonight would persevere. Help us to take seriously the commands to imitate God and to love like Christ. To see how Paul explains what that is to look like in our everyday lives. May we walk in paths of holiness. May we love one another as Christ has loved us until he returns. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.